15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Thank you for joining us on this, the Space Nuts podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Dunkley, and joining me every week without fail, whether he likes it or not, <laughs> is astronomer at large, Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Yeah, sometimes I'm I'm only here in voice, you know, the rest of me somewhere else. <laughs> it can be a bit like that. That's, that's life as we know it. It is life, that's right, yeah. Ask, ask uh, me to... what I've been doing for the last week or two. Oh, um, uh, Andrew, what on earth have you been doing for the last couple of weeks? I've been travelling, surprisingly. <laughs> uh, we've, we've had episodes every week and people would think, oh, well, they, he didn't go anywhere, but... Um, yeah, we, we, we did a bit of a cram a couple of weeks ago just to keep the show going. And I um, Things we do. I did a little trip with Judy to a place uh, that is well known to Australians and New Zealanders and people in the southwest Pacific called Papua New Guinea, uh, which is not probably on many bucket lists, I wouldn't think, because um, I, I think people have a, preconce- a preconceived idea of New Guinea. And I would say to a certain degree they are right. It is a very, um, given the way we live in the Western world, it is a very primitive place uh, in many respects. We, we took a cruise ship out of Brisbane, took two days to get to a place called Alatau, which is part of Milne Bay province. Now, Australians uh, would probably be very much aware of Milne Bay because it was the site in uh, June of 1942 of a major battle between Japanese uh, soldiers who invaded Milne Bay to try and take airstrips from the Australians. And had they won that battle, uh, the Japanese would have been able to supply the, uh, the troops on Kokoda, mm. which would have ultimately led to victory there. They would have taken Port Moresby probably, and that would have opened up Australia to a Japanese attack. Uh, thankfully, the Japanese made two mistakes. They underestimated our forces and only sent 1,000 men to fight against 9,000 men and they landed in the wrong place and that was the recipe for failure and it was their first defeat on land in the Pacific campaign and um, I got to walk the the areas where the battle was fought. There was a VC won there by a 19-year-old Australian who basically single-handedly fought back a Japanese attack, um, paid with his life and, uh, yeah, it just mind-blowing just seeing the layout of it and where it all happened uh, it was it was close quarters fighting for four days but um yeah one of the the, the great victories um of the second world war in the pacific and then we went to a place called Kirawina, fred Kirawina is a little island uh, which hasn't changed much over all the time people have lived there uh, they don't have electricity they only have two water sources one of them being a cave And they basically live off the land. They grow yams and they fish. And we hired a local to take us on a bit of a walking tour of her village. And they live the way you would see in the movies. They live in grass huts that are built off the ground. Uh, They have, uh, they build little fires to cook. Um, Very, very basic living. Uh, And as she said to us, you either work or you go hungry. And, and that's their life. And she's she was in her 30s, we estimated. She has four children, and she has never once in her life stepped foot off that island. 
which wow. it just blows my mind. And they, they do rely on the cruise ship trade. That said, um, they, they um, um, use the local New Guinea currency, which is um, uh, Kina, but uh, the island people actually use banana leaves as a currency, <laughs> which just blows your mind. And then we went to a place called Conflict Island, which is was an uninhabited island, but it was bought by uh, the lease was bought unseen by an Englishman, an English aristocrat, who was a close friend of Prince Charles. I'm told he was on the island while we were there, and they've just turned it into a bit of a tourist hub. And it is what you would call picture picture perfect. Uh, if you were to look at a postcard of of the South Pacific, that's that's what you would see. So it it was quite the opposite to Kirawina in terms of of what they were offering. Uh, but he's uh, turned a, a, an island of no people into a little community. He employs seventy four people who live on the island full time just to um, create a tourist destination. So he's done good things for the local economy. But uh, fascinating trip, fascinating people. Just um, really opened your mind as to how well off we are in the first world uh, and, and you just see how people live in places like that and you think, you know, what are we, what are we doing on this planet that, that creates such a massive divide between rich yes, and poor? Yes, exactly. But, um, there, and, of course, we're spending all the money on astronomy. That's what we're doing. Now, yeah, about um, <clears throat> $23.50 of it. That's... Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, no, I look. Um, I, I, I take your point there. I I often wonder what we did to become so privileged here. Mm. Uh, and um, yes, there are there are many many people throughout the world who don't have the things that we've got. And um, yeah, yeah it makes me it makes me lucky. very sad. Yeah, yeah makes um, me sad. Now, people are doing it tough in first world countries as well. Certainly but, not yeah. brushing that under the under the yeah. rug, but. Uh, when you see how these people, like they go out in a canoe every morning to fish, yep, um, and and yep. I saw them bringing in tuna, um, yeah. just little ones, baby tuna, and uh, they were bringing them in by the dozens, and that was for them to sell and eat, uh, yes. and that was that that's their life. And others grow yams and they harvest, and it's a big deal to them. They uh, yeah, and I'm glad I did it. I'm glad we went. I think it's important to learn this kind of stuff and mm-hmm. make a, a better fist of ourselves in terms of um, being more human, if I can put it that way. Exactly. Mm. Now that's got nothing to do with astronomy. Um, maybe the early navigators used astronomy uh, to, to to get there, but uh, today we're going to talk about uh, some more fast radio bursts, uh, which have got people scratching their heads these ones are very regular they uh, they come and go in bursts over four days and then not for tw- you know and then disappear for 12 days and then they're back again um and it's got people wondering if they're from an extraterrestrial source or for, or if they're natural i'm going with the latter and a possible explanation for dark matter using newtonian dynamics whatever that is and questions about pulsar gps and space junk today so uh, that's what's on the agenda in this edition of space nuts fred let's start with these uh, fast radio bursts and astronomers um, have uh, been fascinated by these radio signals that have been bombarding us and this burst uh, in particular this group of bursts uh, is happening on, on a basis that would suggest, well, gosh, they're, they're so regular and so sort of specifically timed, they can't be natural. But then again, they probably are. 
<laughs> you can bet your life they are, Andrew. <laughs> um, but uh, it has got people excited. So what's the story with Fast Radio Bursts? You and I have spoken about them many times before. They t- turned up, um, first of all, in archival data from the Parks Radio Telescope here in Australia. Back in 2007, people were looking through uh, the archive and found these intense pulses of radio radiation um, that seemed to come from all over the sky. Uh, the <clears throat> the um, you know the intensity is such that uh, if you imagine the kind of energy that would have gone into a pulse like that, it's so it's the kind of energy that the the sun would deliver in a thousand years or ten thousand years uh, and yet we're getting it within a millisecond a thousandth of a second so very high energy events and very intriguing because um for a while they they just appeared a single out of the blue events which made it very difficult to track down where they were coming from because you'd record one of these things uh with a radio telescope but not be able to home in on exactly where, where the source of it was because the, basically the telescope wasn't set up for that. Then, um, I think in 2015 or thereabouts, if I remember rightly, um, it was discovered that at least one of these things didn't just burst once, it actually repeated. And that was the first of the so-called repeating FRBs. Uh, It was discovered in archival data, actually, from the Arecibo telescope in Puerto Rico. Uh, And it was found that this thing actually pulsed, not in a regular fashion, but not just once, but many times. Since then, um, a whole host of these things have been turned up and a particularly successful instrument in finding them has been something called the Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment, uh, which is known as CHIME. Uh, That's the acronym. It's in British Columbia in Canada. Uh, And um, over uh, the, I think the past year or so, uh, CHIME has actually detected something in the region of 20 of these repeating fast radio bursts. Now, the great thing about the repeaters is because they come from, you know, they come from the same area of space, Mm. uh, and that means that you can can kind of home in on them and get a much more accurate idea of where uh, the source is in terms of its direction in space. And once you've got that, then you can follow up with uh, with a, a, an optical telescope, a visible light telescope, to actually look at where these things are coming from, you know, where the radio signals are coming from. And um, that's happened now on a number of, for a number of uh, fast radio bursts, the repeaters in particular, and they seem to come from pretty nondescript regions of pretty nondescript galaxies. Some A, a fairly modest galaxy... Uh, will have um, a fast radio burst seem to come from its outskirts, you know, from the the outer spiral arms, rather than being concentrated at the centre of centres of these galaxies, where we know the action is taking place, because there's in most galaxies we believe there's a supermassive black hole locating look sorry lurking yeah. in the centre. <laughs> And if you've got if you've got um, activity around that stuff being swallowed up, then that might be the kind of environment you'd expect to find high intensity radio signals coming from. But mm. it's not. It's in, you know, 
re relatively rarefied regions of the outer galaxies. So that's the story so far. Um, one radio burst in particular now has people intrigued because not only has it been found to sit in the outskirts of a fairly normal galaxy about half a billion light years away, uh, as you've just said, uh, a paper that came out within the past few days has demonstrated that it's got a, a it's it's actually got um, a kind of cyclic, a periodic, uh, uh, repeating structure to it. it. So it's not just random repeats as the others seem to be, but this thing has a 16.35 day cycle, um, and what happens is you get in that cycle, you get one to two bursts per hour over a four day period, so that's lots of bursts. And then you get 12 days of nothing. And then it all starts over again. That is a bit strange. <laughs> it's very intriguing. So it, it might suggest that it's coming from something that's rotating away for a portion of time and then... Something like that, that's yeah. right. So um, one of the scientists who's involved with this uh, study has said, and I think this probably comes from their press release, uh, the discovery of a 16.35-day periodicity in a repeating FRB source is an important clue to the nature of this object. Um, one possibility is that it's an object orbiting a star which sends signals out only at a certain you know, period of its orbit, or it could be a signal sent by a binary star system uh, where you've got a massive normal star and a highly magnetized neutron star, something we usually call a, magnet, a magnetar. Um, or, you know, so it could be something where the, the signal's only visible at a certain time in the orbit of one of these things. Or it could just be a single object. Um, and what we see could be caused by rotation or a kind of wobbling um, of the axis of this star. Uh, so these are all possibilities. The the paper in question uh, that uh, produces these results has got, I, can't, I didn't count the authors, but it must be in the region of 60 authors. Um, it's called Periodic Activity from a Fast Radio Burst Source. Uh, it was uh, released um, on the 3rd of February uh, and gives the details of this object, uh, this four-day window when when you get uh, lots of bursts, then there's 12 days of silence, and then, you know, the whole thing repeats every 16.35 plus or minus 0.18 days. So it's remarkable. Uh, is it due to aliens? No, probably not. Probably uh, not, as much as we'd love that to be the case. We would. There is one, um, you and I have talked talked about this before, um, Avi Loeb, who's the director of the Harvard-Smithsonian Institute for Astrophysics, Centre for Astrophysics. He wrote a paper some years ago speculating that fast radio bursts were the result of high-energy beams uh, radiated to... Uh, light sails to propel alien spacecraft yes, around right. their respective galaxies. Um, I don't think anybody believes that, but I don't think his paper has been disproved either. So, you know, there's no conclusive evidence that says, no, this cannot possibly be that. Um, oh. it, what he, he worded his paper very carefully. He said that the, the parameters all fitted what you might expect from a light, a light sail. But I don't think that will turn out to be what it is. And this periodicity is definitely a clue 
in trying to understand these things better. So as always with these things, Andrew, watch this space. We might have more to say not too far down the track. Uh, Including its name, which I'm going to ask you to furnish (laughs) us with. Well, it's usually abbreviated to FRB 1809161J0158 plus 65. There it is. That's not quite its full name. (laughs) Actually, we'd normally just call it FRB 180916 because... Uh, these things are named after the date at which they first uh, burst, you know, the first burst. And that was on 2018, September the 16th. Indeed. All right. Uh, hopefully more to learn. Uh, one of the great mysteries of the universe that's still to be resolved. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Let's take a break from the show and hear a word or two from our sponsor, Grammarly. Now, I have to say I'm a big fan of Grammarly uh, because I've been using it for a few years now. Very helpful for authors, but uh, also really good for everyday life. They've saved me on a few occasions, uh, particularly with spelling, but also with a few issues that uh, didn't quite make sense. Uh, It's built by linguists and language lovers, and uh, Grammarly's writing app finds and corrects hundreds of complex writing errors, so you don't have to do it yourself word by word, day by day. (laughs) You can uh, easily copy and paste any English text into Grammarly's online text editor or just install uh, Grammarly's free browser extension for Chrome, Safari, Firefox and quite a few others. Grammarly's algorithms flag potential issues in the text and suggest context-specific corrections for grammar, spelling and vocabulary Uh, Grammarly explains the reasoning behind each correction so you can make an informed decision about whether and how to correct an issue. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and nearly anything else you write on the web. Uh, For you, the listener of Space Nuts, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. So if you'd like to download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash spacenuts. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash spacenuts to download Grammarly for free and let them know you came from us. Uh, I'll include the link in the show notes as well. And now, back to Space Nuts. Three, two, one... Space nuts. Now, Fred, uh, I think last episode I said to you that uh, sometime in the next week we were going to crack the 1,000 when it came to YouTube subscribers. Well, guess what? Uh, we didn't. Yeah, we did. Oh, did we? Wow. We did. <laughs> I the thought number... you were going to say we got to 998. <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that because somebody messaged me to say I'm, not, I'm 998. Oh, good. There you are. No, I'm not kidding. That really happened. Yeah. But uh, I don't know who was 1,000 because now it's 1,004. Ah. Well, there you go. Well, well done, everybody, Um, you YouTube people. Thank you very much. What does this all mean, Fred? I have no idea. Me either. I just was just told, get it to 1,000. So I've done that. Right. Um, But... What we get the Nobel next? Prize now, don't we? Isn't I know, that what I it guess is? So. But yeah, yeah. You know, keep going. If you if you're a YouTuber and you haven't subscribed to the Space Nuts YouTube t- channel, it's at YouTube.com/slash C for Charlie slash Space Nuts, and you can listen to every episode there by pressing one button, and they'll just keep on playing ad infinitum, <laughs> never ever ending. 
Can you imagine anything worse? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Getting my teeth pulled without an anaesthetic would probably Uh, only be slightly worse. Yeah, slightly worse. Okay. (laughs) Now, uh, our next topic, Fred, is um, an interesting one as well. Uh, This uh, involves uh, dark matter and the, the work that's going into trying to figure out what it might be. And in this case... They've used Newtonian dynamics to come up with a potential explanation, but uh, I I see you shaking your head. You don't seem all that convinced. Or maybe <laughs> I just didn't explain it well enough. Well, um, okay. So when dark matter first was postulated back, uh, in, well, let me just um, qualify that, in the modern era, if I can put it that way, because back in 1933, Fritz Vicky realised that there was something going on that we didn't understand. And he, he actually is the person who coined the term dark matter. But it wasn't until 1978 when Vera Rubin, a uh, great American astronomer, wrote some papers that the world started taking notice of the idea that without this stuff, galaxies could not, rotate, they would fly apart uh, because there's not enough material in them to hold them together. And that's the beginning of the modern era of dark matter studies. Now, in the wake of that, uh, the first thing that people said almost was, okay, maybe we've got gravity wrong. Maybe it's not that there's something there that we can't see, some dark matter. Maybe we've got the idea of gravity wrong. And very quickly, uh, a scientist called Mordechai Milgram, who's in Israel, I think he's Tel Aviv, I might be wrong there, but he's certainly uh, in one of the Israeli universities. Uh, Milgram postulated the idea uh, that the our knowledge of the way gravity works uh, and that, well, you know, we've got two two theories of gravity. One is Newton's, one is Einstein's. Uh, they effectively give you the same answers unless you're in very high gravitational fields, in which case Newton's theory breaks down. Uh, but Newton Newton's dynamics and Newton's gravity theory is good enough for a lot of what we do, what we understand when it comes to the rotation of galaxies and things like that, because you're not talking about very high gravitational fields. So... Um, what happened was uh, Dr. Milgram, Professor Milgram, in fact, he produced a theory which is usually called MOND. And MOND is just an abbreviation for Modified Newtonian Dynamics. Uh, and what it means, what it says is that uh, the laws that Newton set down work really well under what you might call normal accelerations, normal um, experiences of gravity, like what we have here on Earth, like what we've got in most of the solar system. But the suggestion is that when those accelerations get very, very weak, then it breaks down. Then Newton's law doesn't work. um, And the suggestion is that under very low accelerations, like what you get, you know, in the outskirts of galaxies, the forces that hold galaxies together, uh, maybe the force, the dynamical force becomes stronger, uh, which is why galaxies might hold together. Um, under these weak accelerations. So Milgram produced this theory. It was analysed very closely in the early 1980s um, and eventually was not exactly discarded but was shelved because if you 
uh, if you put Mond into your big picture, mm. like the way clusters of galaxies behave, it doesn't work. It works for single galaxies, but with clusters of galaxies, and more especially with the way we think the universe behaved in its very early uh, period, uh, it doesn't work. And that's why people have gone off on this wild hunt uh, for the last 30-odd years looking for dark matter, which we haven't yet found. Um, we ruled out things like orphan planets and black holes and dead stars very early on in the piece. And now the, the thinking is that what we're dealing with is a subatomic particle or a, a class of subatomic particles that, uh, that don't interact with normal matter except through gravity. And that's very much the accepted picture uh, with a fair bit of supporting evidence. However, uh, there are still a few scientists, and actually I know one of them who's embarking on a PhD on exactly this topic. Um, in fact, I think he's, a, he's a, uh, actually a Space Nuts listener, so he, he, you, know who, you know who you are. Okay. <laughs> uh, Peter. And uh, <laughs> so um, it's, uh, it's basically uh, something that people are looking at again. That's the bottom line, that because we've not found what, you know, the, um, the sort of natural uh, physical ideas because we haven't found what that's telling us namely this species of subatomic particle um, then you're you've got to look at other possibilities so that's the backstory andrew sorry it's taken rather oh, long. That, no that's okay we need we need to <laughs> sort of get ourselves in the right position the to right move position, forward yeah. so the front story now yeah. is that um, a group of scientists uh, led, I think, by Dr. Pavel Krupa, who's at the Helmholtz Institute for Radiation and Nuclear Physics at the University of Bonn uh, and also at the Charles University in Prague, um, has uh, this team have essentially said, OK, let's see what happens if we do have Mond and you've got uh, galaxies forming in an early universe. And so what they've done is run these gigantic simulations. Now, these are not uncommon. They're usually, they're, they're always done on supercomputers. I know of a few people uh, or a few institutions throughout the world that have done this kind of thing, one most uh, very notably in the University of Durham in, in northern England, uh, where you, you basically start off with what you think are the laws of physics and what you think is uh, the, the material that's in the aftermath of the Big Bang. And then you run it all under the influence of gravity and lo and behold, what you get is galaxies. Uh, but the thinking has been that um, without dark matter, you wouldn't really get galaxies that look like the ones we have today. Um, and the new work, uh, which, uh, which uh, Dr. Krupa and his colleagues have put together, uh, actually disproves that. Because what they've done is they've built a universe in the computer uh, which, uh, in which MOND works, modified Newtonian dynamics. And then, uh, you know, after, in the aftermath of the Big Bang, you start off with these clouds of hydrogen. You press the button and away it goes. And what do you get? Well, you get galaxies. Um, you get something very, very similar to what we see, uh, stars and galaxies, you know, um, emanating uh, within the first few million, uh, 100 million years of the Big Bang. Um, one, of the, one of the comments uh, that uh, has been made on this paper um, is really interesting. It comes from uh, um, 
uh, basically, actually, it's, it's, I think it might be from, from the press release that, um, that they issued. Um, the paper, by the way, if anybody wants to look it up, is called The Formation of Exponential Disc Galaxies in Mond uh, by a whole succession of authors, Feb- 5th of February, Astrophysical Journal. But the comment that's been made uh, is calculations based on the existence of dark matter are very sensitive to changes in certain parameters, such as the frequency of supernovae, exploding stars, and their effect on the distribution of matter in galaxies. And we know that. We we believe um, supernovae actually drive really quite a lot of the, um, the ingredients of galaxy formation, uh, stars exploding at the ends of their particularly short lives. Yeah. But what they say is that in the Mond simulation, these factors hardly played a role. So that's really quite interesting um, that Mond actually, you know, looks a little bit more stable uh, in these simulations than than the dark matter models. Um, however, they do make the point that the simulation is only a first step. Uh, they've really made very simple assumptions about the distribution of matter in the young universe. And what uh, Professor Kruper says is we now have to repeat the calculations and include more complex influencing factors. And then we will see if the Mond theory actually explains reality. So what they're saying is that this work is really just a starting point uh, and that they want to put in some more parameters that perhaps more closely match conditions in the infant universe and see whether we still get galaxies uh, like the ones that have been produced by this simulation. It's really interesting stuff, and I kind of applaud it in a way, because even though Mond does not look like the answer to the problem of dark matter, it's still worth exploring to see what what you come out with at the end of it. Yeah, it's such a a difficult thing to study because the unknowns are so significant. Where do you start? You've got to try something. So they've come up with a concept that they're yep. working with to see if it could work and then they can build on the successes and or failures of it yep. to recalibrate the the concept again, I suppose. Uh, that's right. That's exactly what it is. Um, you, it, it's, you, you could almost call it trial and error, but you're putting in, it's not completely random. You're actually putting in um, starting conditions which uh, basically bear as much resemblance as you can muster uh, to what you thought the conditions would have been at that time. Mm. And, uh, you know, we've got other sources to look at that. We know, for example, a lot about the flash of the Big Bang because we can still see it uh, in uh, in microwave radiation. So all that information uh, factors into it as well to see what what you get. Indeed. I, I was going to say, are we not thinking big enough with sol- solving this dark matter thing? But I suppose if you're trying to replicate what happened straight after the Big Bang, it doesn't get much bigger than that. No. <laughs> That's right. Mm. Um, what else do you throw, throw in? Magic, perhaps. That would Magic, uh, <laughs> magic is the reason. That's, that would do it. That's got to be the explanation. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. All right. Hopefully science will produce the answer. One day you and I will laugh at these conversations, Andrew, because we'll know exactly what dark matter is and that'll have solved the problem. And then we'll look back at all our episodes where we talked about it and gone, well, we weren't even close. No, not even close. That's right. Mm. We were adequate, but not close. (laughs) There it is. Uh, You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Roger, you're live. Stay here also.
Space Nuts. And a big hello to our patrons who've been supporting Space Nuts for a good while now. And of course, if you are a patron, there is bonus material available at patreon.com slash space nuts. We're adding to it every week or almost every week, uh, on a regular basis. So if you're a patron and you uh, have a question for us, indeed, send it uh, into us via our uh, website at bytes.com uh, slash space nuts, and we will um, endeavour to answer the question on our patrons page, patreon.com slash space nuts. If you'd like to become a patron, you can go to the same site and learn all about it. Maybe it's not for you, uh, but maybe it's something you'd like to do and contribute to the program in whatever form you deem fit. And we appreciate the support, of course. Um, and speaking of questions, Fred, we've got a couple of audience questions to try and bump off today. Uh, the first one comes from David Finlay. Hi, David. Uh, hi, guys. He says, I've seen it mentioned before that pulsars can be used for navigation in deep space. Do you think it might be practical in the future to have a pocket universal positioning system that could tell your location anywhere in space? He also says, uh, pulsars radio, uh, are pulsars radio loud enough to do it without a large antenna? Interesting, David. Uh, it's a great question, Andrew, and um, that's absolutely right that you, you could use pulsars for navigation, and that's because pulsars are incredibly regular. They are better than most atomic clocks in keeping perfect time. Um, so that And that's the key, of course, to GPS, the global positioning system. It's the time signals that you get from the satellites that you can see uh, that actually give you uh, the triangulation to get your position on the Earth's surface. So uh, from GPS to UPS, Universal Positioning System, although I think that those initials have been used somewhere before, but the UPS yes. that David's uh, suggesting... Um, it, it, it's certainly true that uh, if you know enough pulsars and you can kind of see them all uh, with your radio telescope, then you could pinpoint your location. Uh, the problem is um, the radio telescope bit. So uh, the second part of David's question, a pulsar's radio loud enough to do it without a large antenna, um, not at the moment. The, 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 the technology that we have at the moment needs things the size of the park's dish, which has a 64-metre antenna, um, very big. Uh, it's not the kind of thing that you can fold up and put in your uh, smartphone. Definitely However, not. remembering what mobile phones were like 30 years ago, uh, where you nearly needed a big antenna to make it work, uh, maybe one day we'll have such sensitive radio receivers uh, that we could have pulsars in our pockets so that wherever we are in the universe, we would know. Uh, then you have to ask the question, well, why would you bother doing this? Because the kind of distances that you would need to travel to make any difference to which bit of, you know, which set of pulsars you were seeing, uh, that is well beyond what we physically can do with our present technology. So, um, I, uh, I, yes, it's a rhetorical question. Uh, could you do that? Could you have this kind of navigating system? Uh, and rhetorically, the answer is yes. Mm. Uh, but um, it's probably not something that we're going to see anytime soon or need anytime soon. Yeah, well, I suppose the latter is yeah. the issue. Uh, but if we reach a point in our history or our future where we can travel vast distances 
reasonably easily, it would it would have to come into play then. It would help, yeah. It would be very helpful to have your pulsars, but um, you'd have all kinds of weird and wonderful relativistic effects to take into account as well when you're doing that. It would be it would be great stuff, yeah. uh, and um, you never know um, that kind of that kind of uh, navigation might give us insights into dark matter. Who knows? Oh, well, here we go again. <laughs> yeah, you never know. All right. Yeah, you never know. Uh, thank you, David. Hopefully we uh, gave you a bit more to think about there, um, and thanks for the question. Let's move on to Sean Farrell's question. Hello, Andrew and Professor Watson. Oh, he's being very diplomatic, isn't he? Very, um, no, it's very uh, formal. I, <clears throat> I do. Hello, Sean. Um, now, uh, the ESA uh, launched a 100, euro, uh, 100 million euro satellite with a grappling arm to grab onto a large piece of space junk to change its course for a re-entry and burn up in the atmosphere as a test on removing space junk. Uh, I would like to know if a CubeSat could, let's say, stick itself to space junk and fire a small booster or rocket to do the same as ESA's 100 million euro plus uh, project. Uh, Utilising CubeSats may be helpful and less costly uh, with certain debris. Uh, send up a swarm of CubeSats to work together and um, uh, guided by the ESA control. Interesting thought. He also goes on to say um, one of Russia's top-of-the-line spy satellites just broke apart. Uh, it was alleged that the space debris may have hit the satellite and now more space junk. Uh, maybe... Um, uh, maybe you, me, and the professor should patent the CubeSat idea and get rich. <laughs> I enjoy the show very much, and you guys are great together. Well, we're, we're miles and miles apart, but I think I know what you mean. I suppose we, we should we probably we probably would be great together. We would, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> we're in the yep. same room. <laughs> yes. Uh, now let's talk about uh, the grappling arm and the potential for CubeSats to do the job. Where, what do you think of that idea? Yes, it's it's. Uh, I think actually people are looking at exactly this. Um, the uh, the the problem of space junk is increasingly recognised as something that needs to be faced up to, and needs to be tackled. And that uh, European Space Agency uh, project. Uh, that uh, that Sean refers to um, is just one of a number of trials to to look at the kinds of technologies that might uh, you know that might be usable to bring satellites down. Well, I think they've uh, already tested a harpoon, have they not? Yeah, the, the, that's right. There's there's a number of these experiments that have actually been trialled, uh, and that was just one of them. The grappling arm was one. There's a there's one with a net as well oh, that that's uh, right. Yeah, I forgot about the net. Folded uh, around space debris, mm. so that the, the, the I, I guess what you're trying to do here is to try out technologies that might be used on a kind of production line uh, to to bring things down. But you can bet your life that when they when they do put these into action uh, in reality, it will be with things not much more expensive than cubesats, uh, which of course are a, you know a, a factor of a hundred less than a hundred million dollars. The cubesats are in the region of a million to ten million dollars uh, to, well, you, to build you build a hundred of them or two hundred yeah, of right. them actually if you yeah. convert the euro to Australian dollars. You, yeah, indeed, and you and that's you know that is. Uh, 
probably the way the way ahead for this kind of technology. The the the, the big issue is exactly what what do you use to uh, to to do the job of deorbiting your piece of space junk, mm. and a CubeSat uh, equipped with a with a, a rocket might actually not be big enough if you're trying to stick it to a 10-ton spacecraft that's gone AWOL and you're trying to deorbit it, it might just not have the amount of space needed to put in a, a, a large enough booster or a large enough rocket. And I think what might be a more promising technology is uh, to erect, you know, maybe inflate a large, uh, effectively a sail, something with a very large area uh, in space that will, um, you know, act as a brake on the object that you're trying to slow down by virtue of the fact that it's got atmospheric drag, that the residual atmosphere up there on something with a big enough area will make its orbit decay. That, of course, d d depends on what orbit the, the space junk is in to start with, and it's really that's only going to work for what we call low Earth orbit, which is of order a few hundred kilometres, up to about a thousand kilometres. So um, I think the possibilities are, are extremely, you know, they're, 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 there are many of them and many institutions are looking at these possibilities. But you can bet your life that CubeSats will play a part in this uh, when we start to see this being done for real. Uh, another thing that's being explored here in Australia is the use of lasers to nudge things into into different orbits. There's a an, an organization called SERC, the Space um, Environment Research Council, I think it is. Uh, they are research corporate cooperation. It's a, a cooperative venture. They are looking at the idea of using lasers to to nudge things into orbits that will bring them down. All of these things come, of course, with an interesting legal aspect, because if you've got uh, an, a spacecraft which you bring down and the people who operate it don't want that to happen, well, that's a hostile act. And suddenly you're in very different territory. And yeah. uh, it's, um, you it's, know, it's, it's something piracy. It could be piracy. And, and I don't think this has really been properly ironed out yet. I don't think the details have been um, have been legislated anywhere. So we're still facing really interesting issues there. Indeed. But, um, Sean, if you want to go ahead and put that patent in our names, I'd be yep. more than thrilled to be involved. <laughs> as, long as, got, as long as we don't have to pay anything. No, no. <laughs> got, got no money. <laughs> But I love your idea. And thank, and thank you for your question, Sean. Uh, greatly appreciate it. Very um, thought-provoking indeed. Um, now, Fred, before we finish, um, I happened to be at uh, Sydney Airport the other day browsing through the uh, science section of a bookshop and I came across a uh, little book called Cosmic Chronicles. There you were on and the there bookshelf. Was, yeah. now, I, should, I should point out you were on the bottom of the bookshelf and only the spines were showing. So I think you need That's, to. I think you need to slip your promoter a few more dollars. The um, the <laughs> problem is when your surname starts with W, w. they always put these in alphabetical order of author. Yeah. So I'm always at the bottom. I know. Uh, but what? That's what, not fair. You, you should be. Yeah. You know, your title starts with C. Number <laughs> at large. That's right. Well, that. I'll be that at the top. Title. Indeed. Um, the. Yeah, what cheered me about, because you sent me a little snapshot of of what you saw, which I thought was great. Thank you very much for that. That's all right. But what cheered me was that there were only two copies there. Yes. And they, 
Uh, almost certain, certainly ordered 10, and that means they've got rid of eight already. <laughs> or there wasn't enough room on the bookshelf and they're underneath the, uh, the counter. <laughs> that could be right as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I hope they have sold. I hope they have. Of course, if you want to buy your own copy of Cosmic Chron- Chronicles, which is what it's called everywhere except America, I believe. Uh, no, it's, it's actually called... It's, it's called Cosmic Chronicles Nowhere Except in Australia. Exactly. So everywhere else it's called... Exploding Stars and Invisible Planets. That's hard that's to remember. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but there's a Space Nuts bookshelf on our Space Nuts website, bites.com, B-I-T-E-S-Z.com slash Space Nuts. You can listen to uh, our podcast via that website, but you can also go to the Space Nuts bookshelf and pick up a copy of, um, of Fred's book. And he's, he's got more than one. He's, he's published one and a half so far, I think it is. <laughs> Probably a few more. But, um, yeah, it was good to see it there. I was chuffed. I was. Um, thank you that's much. where we've got to wrap things up, Fred. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me, Andrew. I'm I, glad you um, could make it. It would have I'm been very always... hard to talk for this long by myself. No, it wouldn't have. I wouldn't have talked much sense, but I could have talked for this long by myself. Yeah. That's all right. It would have been it would have been equally entertaining. But um, thank you very much for having me, and we'll speak again sometime soon. Indeed, we will. Uh, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, one half of the not so dynamic duo that uh, makes up Space Nuts. And thank you for your um, attention and, of course, your contribution to the program. And we'll catch you again next week on another edition of Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Um...